This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about erosion, how it works, and why it's happening so quickly here in Moab. It's a good show. Stay with us. So if you understand the history of the Colorado River, you understand most of the history of the landscape because it sets the pace for everything. It sets the pace for erosion and uh, the signals of erosion, whether they're fast or slow, they go through or they propagate through river systems. Today on Science Moab, we are learning about geoscience with Dr. Joel Peterson. Dr. Peterson is a professor of geomorphology at Utah State University in Logan. There, he explores the landscapes of the interior west and how they have evolved over geologic time. Here, we tease apart the forces and processes that result in the landscapes we see around us and explore the unanswered questions about erosion in Moab and the central Colorado Plateau. We begin our interview discussing what is still unknown about the processes behind erosion on the Colorado Plateau. So there's a lot that's unknown. And I think in science, there is a tendency to, in the case of landscape studies, going to geological landscapes and trying to get the big picture uh, understood And then over the decades, as new technologies have come along and new techniques or approaches in research, it opens up um, a whole different level of questions and specific questions you can ask. And so uh, in the science I do in geomorphology, there's sort of a revolution in the technology and the types of analyses you can do and the geologic numerical dating techniques you can use to put ages on things to construct a history. I kind of feel apologetic on the part of my science because I think even 20 years ago, we knew only the very broadest sort of outline of the landscape evolution of even the Colorado Plateau, which is such a famous landscape. But then in the last 10, 20 years, there's a bunch of new research coming out. And that's because there's all these new techniques and there's ways of putting numbers and ages so we can sort of piece together this history for the first time. Can you tell me a little bit about what those new techniques are? All, you know, geology can be thought of as a historical, physical science. And, uh, and so really some of the key technologies are either physical or chemical techniques to get at absolute or numerical ages. So one of the things uh, that we have, for example, at Utah State University up in Logan is a, is a laboratory where we can do luminescence dating. And uh, luminescence dating is, is a technique whereby you can grab uh, sediment or sand grains that are in a geologic context in layers or strata. And we can take them back to the laboratory and calculate how long ago those got deposited in those beds or strata, and specifically over recent geologic history. And so for understanding the landscapes in the Caudal Plateau, or around Moab, that's really, really important because 
it's a pretty young landscape. You know, the canyons to a geologist have been cut quite recently. And, you know, the Colorado River has a history that to a geologist is a young history of canyon cutting and erosion. And uh, this technique, for example, luminescence dating is perfectly suited for being able to figure out the timing of things in that young geologic history. And, and there are other techniques um, also um, that are really helpful with understanding landscape evolution. There's a, another dating technique called uh, cosmogenic dating that uses cosmogenic nuclides coming from space to uh, dose sediments in rock. And, uh, and that way you can uh, understand how long they've been exposed in a landscape and more. <laughs> so yeah, so there's a couple of examples. But in the studies that um, I've been a part of, it's been incredibly important that we have this laboratory up in Logan for this particular technique, luminescence dating. And that's really key to the work I've done on how fast are things eroding and what's the landscape history. How varied are the processes that influence erosion and uplift in our area? Are we talking about a few basic processes or are there just this myriad of different factors influencing what we're seeing around us? There are specific processes of erosion of which there are a handful of important ones. Another way of thinking about your question is what it is that controls or compels landscapes to erode. And there's a handful of sort of factors that control whether erosion is happening fast or slow, or whether it passes through a landscape in waves, or whether it's gradual and incremental. So I think the short answer is there's a handful of key processes, and there's a handful of things that control those processes. And if you put together those processes and controls, then, uh, then you're getting into a lot of the details of how does the landscape work over geologic time. And so in looking around us, are there certain, certain one of these main processes and then these controls that are kind of shaping most of what we see? Or is it a combination of all these different things that are coming together to make these diverse landforms that we see around us? Yeah, yeah no, no, it's definitely a combination of things. And then the, you know, sort of unique combination of things happening in this landscape are also acting on a bedrock geologic context that is itself sort of unique. So, of course, the Colorado Plateau right, is famous for the strata and layers of especially sandstones. And those bedrock formations, they create distinctive landscapes when you couple them with, you know, rivers cutting canyons and glaciers in mountain peaks and other processes. But the other thing that I just alluded to, when it comes down to it, the, the big player in landscape evolution in this part of the world is the Colorado River. And that shouldn't surprise anyone. You know, the, the Colorado River system, if you think of it at large, is it's the way that all water and all sediment, everything that's eroded gets out of our landscape through that river. And so if you understand the history of the Colorado River, you understand most of the history of the landscape um, because it sets the pace for everything. It sets the pace for erosion and uh, the signals of erosion, whether they're fast or slow, they go through or they propagate through river systems. So a lot of the work I've done is focused on understanding the history of the Colorado River. And even though rivers are just a tiny piece of the overall landscape, they're really important for understanding geologic erosion processes. 
I saw that some of your work on rivers was done pretty close to Moab, and your team found some of the fastest incision rates measured on the Colorado Plateau just upstream of Moab. Yeah. Um, what does that mean for what was happening here in our area? It does mean that the, the Moab is where the, the kind of erosion stuff is hitting the fan. And, and that also, you know, in retrospect, seems like um, you could have guessed probably that there was really fast erosion around Moab. I want to. I, I kind of want to reinforce that observation because I, I uh, for years, did a lot of work in Grand Canyon. So far downstream, still in the Colorado Plateau, <clears throat> is uh, Grand Canyon. And, of course, you go to Grand Canyon, and that is a spectacular landscape. It's super steep and very deep. And it's really intuitive to think that uh, Grand Canyon is a place where there's a lot of young erosion and then it's happening fast. And uh, it was a surprise, as, as I uh, have done more work in recent years around southeastern Utah and Moab, it turns out that this landscape is eroding three or four times faster than Grand Canyon is. Especially if you, if you drive from Grand Canyon to um, southeastern Utah, there's a lot of places that are marked by huge broad plateaus. It's not necessarily intuitive that uh, that sort of broad landscape is eroding so much faster than Grand Canyon is, um, but it is. Um, so, so what does that mean? I, actually, that's a that is a great question <laughs> that uh, that motivates me to continue to do research. I think we can show that for some not quite known reason, southeastern Utah and the central Colorado Plateau is in what I call a bullseye of erosion. There is disproportionately fast erosion right around here. And um, there are a couple different hypotheses, but we do not yet know why that is. Can you go into those hypotheses? One thing that my students and I have worked on, which is a partial explanation, is that it goes back to the geologic template again. If you look at the bedrock geology in Grand Canyon, for example, and you compare it to the rocks that are around Moab, the rocks around Moab are measurably weaker. Um, like mechanically, like you can mechanically break them or a river can erode through them much more easily. And by the time this Colorado River gets to Grand Canyon, it is working against a lot of hard limestones, really hard uh, granites and metamorphic rocks um, that are older and deeper in the crust. So part of the explanation surely is that the rocks around Moab are very weak and easily erodible. And so rivers and um, rivulets and Mill Creek and um, other erosion processes can act faster on them. But um, that's only part of the explanation. Uh, you, just because a rock is easy to erode through, it doesn't mean that the river wants to erode through it very fast. And in general, geologists associate places that are eroding quickly with places that are tectonically uplifting. And that's a real common paradigm in geology is that if you're in a landscape where there's lots of tectonic uplift and mountain building, those are landscapes that are also being counteracted by lots of erosion. If you have a high mountain range, it's very steep. Um, it erodes very quickly because of being wet and steep. So that's one thing that I think is interesting here is that uh, in the central Colorado Plateau, even though it's eroding faster, there is no known geologic source for any uplift. 
And so that's one of the reasons it's interesting to me. There are weak rocks that are easily erodible here, but we don't understand what's really compelling rivers to erode so quickly here. Um, and in particular, you don't have good sources of mountain uplift in this area. If you have a landscape like around Moab that's eroding very quickly, it's inevitable. It, it has to be uplifted at some point. And so um, an interesting hypothesis about the central Colorado Plateau is that although it perhaps is not uplifting actively right now, like other mountain ranges in the world, it must have gotten uplifted in the past. And the Colorado Plateau, right, is it's about two kilometers high in average as it sits here in the interior west. And if it's not uplifting today, then it must have uplifted at some point in the geologic past. And then one, one interesting key to that is that the Colorado River system itself is geologically young. And so I guess a, a grander hypothesis that we're working on is that uh, the Colorado Plateau may have been uplifted farther in the geologic past. And it hasn't been until the Colorado River system sort of came into being like we see it today and worked its way from the Rocky Mountains all the way to the sea in Mexico um, at a younger time. It's not until that younger time that you can really make erosion. You can't make a canyon without a river to flow through that canyon. A very, it may be sort of esoteric, but a very broad part of the answer is that the Colorado Plateau is, is potentially an unusual situation where you have an uplifted plateau and then more recently, we've had a river that made its way and finally pieced itself across it. And it wasn't until the river came more recently that you could really get all of this erosion of the high plateau. So we think the whole plateau, though, at one point was definitely lifted. Yep. And so I'm, I guess I'm just confused as to why the uplift creates a hot spot in Moab and not the Grand Canyon. Oh, no, you're right. In this kind of grander hypothesis of a young river, through an older uplifted landscape. There's been a huge debate in the last 10 years in the geosciences specifically focused on Grand Canyon. And because Grand Canyon is such a famous landscape in the world, um, you can imagine that um, a lot of geoscientists want to figure out, well, how old is this canyon and how old is the river going through the canyon? And so the key work uh, has been done there. And, and, and our understanding of what happens in Grand Canyon explains why the erosion might be younger and delayed up here. The Colorado River, over the last few million years, as the Colorado River has come into being, there is a very important point where the river finally crossed the edge of the Colorado Plateau in western Grand Canyon and started making its way through the low country of the Basin and Range and, you know, near Las Vegas on its way down to Mexico. And uh, the Colorado Plateau, of course, sits high above the basin and range. The key thing that happens is once the Colorado River gets off of the high plateau in western Grand Canyon and into the Lake Mead area, then that caused what we call a base level drop way at the downstream end of the Colorado Plateau. And it, it's, it's too dramatic, but you can imagine if a river makes its way off of a plateau, it might be a cascading waterfall, you know, into some lowland. And that, that waterfall, or more broadly, we'd call it a nick point um, or a nick zone in geology, that steep area um, gradually works its way upstream through the river systems. 
And so it, it's actually geologically very possible that once the river got integrated and went to the sea off the edge of the plateau, it has taken a few million years of time for that wave of incision to work its way upstream to the Moab area. And in fact, that's, uh, that is a primary hypothesis that we're seeing evidence for, and that is that erosion in the central plateau is a recent wave of erosion that's been working from downstream to upstream. And part of that might be because it's just delayed from when the river finally got off of the high plateau way down in Grand Canyon. And it's just taken a while for that wave of erosion to get up here. Does that make sense? Yes, and that it's beyond cool. That is okay. really cool. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's a little bit too simple, but it's, it's fun to think of. Uh, yep, if a river makes its way off a highland, it's kind of like a waterfall, like Niagara Falls. And, you know, Niagara Falls is, is uh, famous because you can, uh, a geologist can measure the rate at which Niagara Falls is actually backwasting or moving upstream as erosion occurs. So that regression of a nick point upstream is, is really exactly um, how, at least I personally think, you know, I think that explains why is the erosion hitting the fan here now when it eroded more, uh, you know, in more ancient times in Grand Canyon. It started there. And that wave of incision has worked its way up here, and it's here now. Some of your work has involved asking questions about dynamic equilibriums versus transient features. Oh, my. And I... (laughs) jargon, isn't it? (laughs) Well, I didn't... Yeah, yeah, I didn't understand what those meant, and it seems like a lot of what you're talking about happening here is a transient feature, and I was wondering if you could break that down. In the sense of how a geomorphologist would use that, it's what we were just talking about. So transient, you know, broadly as a word, we could just think of it as meaning that it's uh, that it's moving. It's something that is not resident, it's transient. And so uh, as I talk just now about a wave of incision moving upstream, that's exactly the fancy word for that is transient incision. So, you know, imagine that that focus of incision has been moving spatially through time, upstream, through drainage systems into the landscape. Getting rid of the jargon, transient incision just means a wave of incision that's moving through the system and not kind of stuck in one place at one time. And uh, the term dynamic equilibrium does sort of imply rather the opposite. If, If a landscape is in dynamic equilibrium, then it's one where the shape of the landscape or the rates of erosion that we see in the landscape are relatively steady through time and they're in a really nice adjustment with the bedrock geology in the area. I think of Grand Canyon downstream of here as a landscape that's in dynamic equilibrium where, you know, if you go to Grand Canyon, you can see every cliff that's steep is a hard rock and every weak rock is a slope. Um, And the river itself has steep areas through hard rock and flat areas through weak rock. And so in that way, the form of the landscape and the shape that rivers take and their steepness are all expressions of um, the sort of geologic resisting forces in the landscape. They're all in equilibrium with each other. And if we came back to that landscape in the future, in future geologic time, it would still look the same. Um, because the hard rocks are still hard and the weak rocks are still weak. And the landscape, it's in a, a dynamic, long-term equilibrium with the geology being eroded. 
in a landscape like Moab, where there seems to be waves of erosion going through the landscape, you might see, for example, I mean, I think, I think a lot of your listeners can picture this. You might see places where streams are going through the, the sandstones, the Navajo sandstone. And in some places, it's going through sandstones, and it's in a steep slot canyon. And a slot canyon is a signature of very rapid incision. The river's slicing through the rock like butter. But then you hike farther and you come out of the slot canyon and you're still in the same sandstone. But the valley bottom is then wide, even though you haven't changed rock types or you haven't changed the erodibility of what the river is going through. And so that's a case where um, the landscape's not really in dynamic equilibrium. You can't just, uh, you, you see places that are eroding fast and slow, even if it's in the same rock formation. If a landscape's in dynamic equilibrium, I mentioned you would come back, let's say, in half a million years of geologic time, and it would still kind of look the same. You know, the steep canyons are where the steep canyons are, and et cetera. And I think uh, and this is this is very convenient because it cannot be disproven. Um, but I think if we came back to Moab a million years from now, um, I think that the landscape will look really different because if there are these waves of erosion going through, it's going to eat away at the landscape and move and be farther upstream. And Moab will be an area that looks different than it does now. It's not a landscape that's in this sort of perfect, long-lasting landscape equilibrium. Following on your point that we won't actually know that in the future, um, as a geologist, you can't necessarily do experiments per se. And so how do you find answers to your questions? Well, in, in some cases, geoscientists can create experiments to test things, right? We have, we do, we have, we, we have the, we have the natural record that's preserved in landscapes or in stratigraphy and rocks, but that can only take us so far. And there are um, lots of geoscientists who say, well, wait, if I'm really going to test this, then I have to do an experiment. And so, for example, geologists will commonly make sort of sandbox drainages to scale in a physical experiment in a laboratory. Sometimes geoscientists can actually set up experiments to test things. But you're right, in in, uh, most of the work I do, we just try to reconstruct the history as best we can. Also, there are uh, opportunities where you have what we might call a natural experiment, where um, maybe there's something that's man-made, or you find in nature a place where a certain process is happening at really short time scales so that you can track it and monitor it and see how it works. And there are sometimes sort of natural experiments that we can use to help test things that otherwise are difficult to test because we're talking about these long time scales. But I'm going to admit that um, in most of the research I've done on the Colorado Plateau, it is, it is piecing together a history and it is pretty difficult to come up with tests. And I guess, you know, I guess in, in a way, when we do science, we say, well, if what's controlling erosion is are these waves of erosion going through the landscape rather than a landscape in dynamic equilibrium, then when I look at a record, I should see this pattern. But if I see that pattern instead, that means, you know, this is going on. So that's about the best I can do is to say, well, if if it's this process versus that process going on, then I can make predictions or or we can say, well, the pattern should look like this. And then when we reconstruct the pattern we can at least see what it matches. Um, and that might be a way of saying that uh, when, when my students and I have done research around 
the Colorado Plateau, the patterns that we can find spatially and through geologic time, they match this picture of waves of incision going through the Colorado River system and, and not patterns of ongoing uplift or a landscape that's in equilibrium. On a more human time frame, has land use influenced erosion patterns on the Colorado Plateau? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, you prefaced your question exactly correctly on a, <laughs> on a human time scale. And, uh, and so that's, that's one interesting thing in, in the geoscience I do. Um, if we go out and we measure an erosion rate happening today or historically over decades, it will almost always be significantly faster than the erosion rates that we would measure over geologic time. And one of the main reasons for that is because of human disturbance in the landscape. In geomorphology, the study of landscapes, that has been a major factor that we have struggled with for decades. We recognized long ago, for example, with agriculture. If you till a landscape and you do agriculture on it, you're breaking up that soil, causing a level of runoff that's not what you would normally find in a vegetated landscape. And it creates much faster erosion than non-agricultural landscapes. The short story is that, that it's an overwhelming influence. And so I feel a little bit apologetic because I work to avoid human timescales. <laughs> and, you know, the thing that fascinates me is how did we get this canyon here and how old is it and, and how fast is it still forming? And then there's a whole cadre of incredibly important science about historic times and processes going on and the sensitivity of landscapes to climate change and things like that. Those are all things that that are very influential on landscapes and make things change at a much faster rate in the sort of geologic history of a place. Are there things that you as geoscientists are taking from past climate change events? Yeah, very much so. Earth's history is replete with climate changes. Climate has changed a lot in Earth's past. And so one thing that geoscientists get to study are those past changes. And even how have these landscapes um, responded in the past to past climate changes? And, uh, and part of the motivation to do that is thinking, well, now as climate continues to change um, at an ever faster pace, what do we predict the landscape will do based on what we've seen it do in the past, in the geologic past? And so if, if, to give a quick example, I have a current graduate student who's working on the book cliffs just north, north of us near, uh, near Green River, Utah. And, uh, and one of the things we're looking at are the, this incredible record along the book cliffs of its past changes as climate has changed. And, uh, and so this student is, is working on records where we're trying to figure out, well, as climate has changed over, let's say, the last 100,000 years, we've gone in and out of ice ages. And as we've done that, what does the record along the book list tell us about um, rock avalanches and how the cliffs have retreated and whether or not there's been a lot of gully erosion or not? And then part of the motivation of that is to see, well, if, it, if the book cliffs eroded like this and the processes changed like that, um, under past climate changes, then what would they do in the future? And, you know, the, hum the human-caused climate changes, they're going to be the same magnitude as the sort of climate changes 
that we experienced over ice ages. It's just that they're going to happen faster. And so it's a pertinent question. We actually can look at these old geologic records, and they are recording how the landscape changed over the same magnitude of climate changes we predict are going to happen in upcoming centuries. Which is totally scary, but uh, the answer to your question is yes. Geoscientists do research like that, and part of the motivation is to understand if the landscape is sensitive, and if it's sensitive, what magnitude or types of climate changes is it sensitive to? What first got you interested in geology? I luckily stumbled across uh, geology as a college student, and then uh, growing up in the Midwest, I came with a university group 30 years ago, and I came to Moab, Utah, and it was spectacular. I was just blown away. (laughs) And um, especially after that trip to this part of the world, I went back to the Midwest and uh, was very motivated to continue into graduate school and um, actually magically found my way back here uh, during graduate school and, uh, and beyond. And what do you enjoy about being a scientist? Oh, um, a couple of things. Being a geoscientist usually does entail being outside quite a bit. And so I love being outside and I uh, am a river rafter. And uh, and I'm lucky enough that a lot of the research I've done has been based out of rafts. And, uh, and so that's part of the motivation. I think uh, the other wonderful thing about science is that you get to at least spend um, a real amount of your time as a scientist thinking about uh, really fundamental things. Um, and, and I love that. I, I love being able to uh, think um, and consider geologic timescales uh, because they, they sort of transcend human timescales. It is very satisfying to try to think about things that are at these really big space and time scales, uh, important at scales that are grander than the scale of human lifetimes and things like that. Well, Joel, thank you so much for this interview. It's been very cool to hear about your work and especially how it relates to Moab. Yeah, well, thank you. To listen again to this interview with Joel Peterson or any other episodes, visit kzmu.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. Theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.